So we're in John chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to flip there with me. Our passage this morning takes us one step closer into Jesus' last week before his crucifixion. We're heading into Easter. And our sermons are heading that way too. And remember, our goal this year is to not let Easter slide by our calendar and us experience it with numbness. Our goal this year is to experience it and celebrate it with depth, genuinely. That's our goal. That's what we're, we're up to here. I mean, this is the, the story of God's glory in Easter. And it's big. God came to earth in the form of Jesus, and he died for you and for me, establishing our only hope for salvation. So we'll turn our attention to the glory of Easter more in the next couple of Sundays. Um, but for right now, we're spending some time preparing ourselves for it. Last Sunday, if you were here, we discussed two what I called numbing agents. Two things that would leave us numb as we approach Easter. First one was false belief. A lot of us believe that Jesus saves, but have failed to put our entire faith in him for that salvation. The second one was false religion. A lot of people in the church believe in the religion of Christianity, but not the Christ of Christianity. So we addressed those last week. And if you missed last week, or you just want to hear it again, they actually put these on CD. So if you missed it, you can hear it. And I hope that you will if you did miss it, because it was a very important truth for us as we approach Easter. So those are two reasons that we go through Easter numb to the glory of it all. This morning we'll look at another factor in how we approach the Easter season. It's the factor of devotion. And what I mean by devotion will become clear as we, as we move ahead through the text. Um, so let's just dive right in to John chapter 12. And as you're still flipping there and getting there, John chapter 12, starting at verse 1. I'll tell you how I'd like to do things this morning. I'd like to just move through each verse, just move along and take in what happened. And then after that, discuss some things we can learn from it. That's kind of the road we're walking this morning. Okay? So let's just go through this passage. I hope you'll follow along with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So to set the stage a little bit, this is six days before the Passover. The Passover is a big deal. It's the big national celebration and remembrance of what God did way back when he delivered them from Egypt. The story of Moses. You've probably seen it in the Ten Commandments, the big movie that they show at Easter. This was a big celebration. and People traveled from all over to come to Jerusalem. Bethany was a little town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So it was kind of a natural stopping point on the trip to Jerusalem for Passover. So Jesus and a lot of people were, were coming through there and were staying. And a meal was put together in honor of Jesus. So this would have been the main meal of the day. And just to give you a picture of what this would have been like, these meals were usually eaten around a low, U-shaped table. People would just kind of lounge around. They would sit on the ground with pillows and eat off of this low U-shaped table. And there was no hurry, just a, a good meal and good company, just the men lounging around. Now, the women would not lounge with the men eating. They would be serving the meal. It's just the way the structure was back there. I'm not condoning that for our day or saying that's the way it has to be today around the lunch table necessarily. Feel free if you'd like. But So Martha is there. 
And she's introduced before in the Gospels. You may remember Martha. She's always serving. Even to the point sometimes of being distracted from Jesus because of her service. She's there. Lazarus is there. He's the man that Jesus just raised from the dead. We talked about him last week. So I'm sure there was a lot of buzz about Lazarus being there. A lot of people were wondering, what in the world? What was it like? Did you see anything? I mean, was it restful? I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of discussion about Lazarus being there. It was a big deal. Okay, so that's to set the stage. Back to verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this perfume is called pure nard, which is not a very pleasant name. I think I would have named it something different if I were in charge. Because to be such an expensive and luxurious and sweet-smelling perfume, nard just doesn't seem to do it justice. Although we did consider that for our daughter's name. After this passage, nard Broadway has a ring to it. It was taken from a root. It had to be extracted from a root. And this root had to be dug from the ground in the Himalayan mountains. So they had to dig up this root, transport the root on camelback, half a world's distance from the Himalayas to the Middle East, and then extract it from this root. So it was costly to excavate, costly to produce, and really, really costly to purchase. This was expensive perfume. It's a, quite an understatement. Because we learn later that it was worth about 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages. A year's wages. So Mary loves Jesus so much that she can hardly stand it. And she sees him sitting around this U-shaped table eating. And she just has to express this love and this devotion for Jesus. And so she just she does it. She goes to her room and she goes to wherever she would hide this. Surely it was hidden to be this expensive. And she gets this bottle of precious perfume. And she comes in and her face must have been flushed and her heart must have been pounding. And she just dumps it all over him. Just in just love and devotion to Jesus. That's not the kind of thing that you really premeditate, I don't believe. Just extreme devotion to Jesus. A pound of it, it says. We learn in other passages that it was a pound of it, like 12 ounces of it. Just dumped all over. In adoration of Jesus. A year's wages. A year's salary, gone. I mean, what's your year's salary? I think the median salary in North Carolina is somewhere between like twenty-five dollars and $35,000 a year. So that amount worth just one time poured out in devotion to Jesus. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Now we all know about Judas. He's the one who betrays Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees to be killed at this point, he's still under the radar. The disciples don't realize that he's a, he's a Judas yet. Verse 5. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Judas is asking. Why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, that seems like a pretty legitimate statement. I mean, it's all just dumped out. She wiped some of it up with her hair, but it's gone now. And there's people out there hungry. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to feed the poor and to care for the poor? In fact, we see in other Gospels that some of the other disciples were like, Yeah, Judas is right. What's up with this? In verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 6. 
we learned that he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas objects to this lavish outpouring of worship on Christ. With his lips, he objects because he says, what about the poor? We could have used this. With his heart, he objected because he could have had access to that. Verses 7 and 8. Jesus' response. He says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. But you will not always have me. So Jesus confronts Judas and his other disciples. And he sides with Mary. Saying basically, Mary's act of devotion to me is right and appropriate. Especially in light of his looming death and burial that was approaching. So I don't know if Mary really understood what was coming. Or if God was just sort of working through her. In preparation to teach the disciples something about the death that was coming. But this was an appropriate act of worship. And obviously, if anybody loved the poor, Jesus loved the poor. So he's not saying, forget about the poor. But he is saying that Mary's devotion to me is appropriate, even above and beyond serving the poor. So I'll title today's sermon, Extravagant Devotion. You'll see in your bulletins. Extravagant devotion. Devotion meaning ardent love. A love characterized by intense emotion. And extravagant meaning excessive and unrestrained. The story of Mary is a story of extravagant devotion to Jesus. It's a story of ardent, excessive, and unrestrained love. For Jesus. She pours out what must have been the most, the largest and greatest portion of her net worth in extravagant devotion to Jesus. She defied social acceptability by letting her hair down to wipe it from his feet. Jewish women were not supposed to do that. They were never supposed to let their hair down in public. But in that moment, all she saw in the room was Jesus. And all she felt in her heart was just ardent, intense love for Jesus and devotion to Jesus. So she just pours it all over him. And she just gets down on her knees and just is wiping it with her hair. She doesn't even know what she's doing. She is just so devoted to Jesus. And that's the only person in the room that she could see. Now you may be thinking, okay, great. Good for Mary. Mary was really devoted to Jesus. That is super duper. But what does that have to do with me? I don't own a $40,000 bottle of nard. Some of you might, and I would probably never know, but I doubt any of us here do. So what does this have to do with me? I'm devoted to Jesus in my own way. I'm here at church, aren't I? Well, there's one more statement that Jesus makes during this interaction that John doesn't record. The Gospels are like four different perspectives on the same story. They don't all pick up the same thing. So we take them all four together as a more complete portrait. Now I want you to flip with me to Matthew's account of this same instance. It's in Matthew chapter 26. There's one statement that, that John didn't quite catch or didn't see fit to include in his gospel. 
that Matthew did and Mark did as well. Matthew chapter 26, especially verse 13. 10 through 13 is his whole thing that he says. But verse 13 is the addition that's not included in John. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Matthew chapter 26, verse 13. Jesus says, after he says all this about, no, her devotion to me through pouring of this perfume is appropriate. He says in verse 13, I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So what he's saying here is this story about Mary that we just took in is like a companion story to the story of the gospel. And wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told in memory of her. Like an appendix on the back of a book. It's a companion to the gospel story. Or like a short before a Pixar movie. Something if you have young kids you're very familiar with. It's a companion to the gospel somehow. Why? Why this story? There's so many things that happen to Jesus. But he points this one out and says, wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be remembered. Beyond why, I think we can all say from experience that we've heard the gospel preached. But it has not always been accompanied by this story. More often than not, actually almost 100% of the time, I've heard the gospel proclaimed without any mention of this. But Jesus says it. He says, I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she, what Mary has done, this pouring out of her largest, her, her biggest, most valuable asset, this story will also be told in memory of her. This is kind of a conundrum here. I want to submit a possibility to you this morning. Maybe we haven't heard the gospel in its fullness as much as we think that we have. Maybe a presentation of the gospel is incomplete without remembrance of this story of extravagant devotion. Maybe that's why our churches are full of so many undevoted Christians. So I want to preach the gospel this morning. I want to preach the gospel this morning with its companion lesson that we learned from Mary and her devotion. And I know many of you are thinking, I've heard the gospel a billion times. Well, we're going to address that too. But track along with me. I'm going to preach the gospel here with the companion lesson of Mary. One, we're all sinful people. What I mean by that is that we have all missed the mark of God's holiness and God's glory. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you think you are as sinless as God? No. Well, then you fall short and I fall short of what God requires of us to be in his presence. So one, we're all sinful people. Two, 
The result of this sinfulness, the penalty for this, is death. Justice requires that those who have willfully sinned against God die. Because God is life. We can't be with Him if we're sinful. We sinful people must die. God's justice plus His holiness requires this. The Bible says, says the wages of sin is death. So we're all sinful people. The result of this is death. Number three, God is just, but He is also merciful and loving. So He sent His Son to live a perfect life, to die the perfect death. Our substitute sacrifice. This is Jesus. Our substitute sacrifice. Satisfying the justice of God on our behalf. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're all sinful people. The result of this is that we should die. That is justice. But God is merciful. He sent His Son to fulfill this justice on our behalf. Number four, it is through belief in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, accepting what He's done for us. It is through this that we are forgiven for our sins. It's only through this that we are pardoned from our sins, that we're pardoned from our death sentence. Faith alone, not good deeds, we can't be good enough. We've already admitted that we're not as sinless as God is. We can't be good enough. It's not good deeds. It's not church involvement. It's faith alone in Jesus alone. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's word says that our good deeds are like filthy rags in comparison with the holiness and the purity and the righteousness that is imputed upon us through faith in Christ. Okay? Now this is the gospel. What I've just explained is a, is a short version of the gospel, the good news. But it's incomplete. The Bible says salvation is found in no one else, but there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Many of us have heard this. Many of us believe that Jesus is the only way. This part of the sermon links to last week. That's still incomplete. All of this, without the companion lesson that we learned from Mary about devotion, is the equivalent of me handing you a get-out-of-hell-free card. And you can just slip it in your wallet and forget about it. Oh, I have faith through Jesus. Okay. Sins are taken care of. Death sentence pardoned. Good to go. But saving faith in Jesus is so much more than a get-out-of-hell-free ticket. So much more. An invitation to accept Christ is more than an invitation to accept this past. It's infinitely more. It's more dramatic and life-altering than that. An invitation to accept Christ is an invitation to die. An invitation to accept Christ is an invitation to die. The Bible says, take up your cross and follow me. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. 
And then we'll say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in Him. It's an invitation to die, and it's an invitation to be reborn. Jesus said, you must be reborn to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Being saved through Jesus is not accepting a past that just forgives your sins. It's dying and being reborn. It's dramatic, it's life-altering. This is what baptism is all about. Why do we dunk people underwater and pull them back up when we baptize? It's symbolizing that they have died like Christ did, but they're resurrected anew. And when they come out of that water, that's symbolizing publicly, I am changed. I am new. That old stuff, that old me is dead. This new me is alive to God. And the things that once appealed to you in this world after you've accepted this will start to fade and grow dim. Those old things will pass away. And the glory of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus through the Word will grow brighter and brighter and more and more captivating. And you'll grow more and more devoted until your devotion becomes more and more extravagant. This is the process of the Christian life. Accepting Christ requires it. The gospel requires devotion, and it produces devotion. Extravagant devotion to Christ is an accompanying characteristic of one who has accepted the gospel, who has faith in Christ. I believe that is why Jesus says, this story of Mary will accompany the story of the gospel wherever it's fully preached. Because without this... You can, you can think that you can live a life without this devotion and that you're just waiting for the end to present your card. Jesus. The gospel is incomplete without this. So the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, have I ever heard the full gospel? And if not, am I really a Christian? If I'm not extravagantly devoted, Why? There's only two possibilities. Either A, maybe I never have heard the full gospel. Maybe I haven't accepted it. Or B, maybe I have and I just haven't been growing. But I do believe that if you have accepted it, you will be growing. You should see some increase in your devotion to Jesus over the years. I'm no judge of anyone's heart. I don't have a clue what's going on in anybody's heart. But the Bible does present that. So the question to ask yourself now, what are you devoted to? And these questions will get down into your heart to kind of examine things and see where where do we stand? Because like I said, our goal, we don't want to cruise through Easter and just let it just pass by. I want this to change lives. What are you devoted to? Luke 16, 13 says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one And love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said more about money and possessions than virtually any other single subject. Why would he talk so much about money? 
Because what we do with money is one of the clearest indicators of what we're devoted to. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Mary was devoted to Jesus extravagantly. Judas was devoted to money extravagantly. Mary did all this extravagant pouring out of her resources in devotion to Jesus. Judas went out his way. He walked two miles later on that night probably to make a deal for roughly 25 bucks in our equivalent day to betray Jesus and all his friends for Jesus to be killed. He was extravagantly devoted to money where Mary was extravagantly devoted to Jesus. So which are we devoted to? What are we pouring our money into? And we say, well, I give 10% to church, and that is good. 10% is good. doesn't sound very extravagant, though, does it? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not making a plea for your money here. I'm just trying to point out that how we use our money and how we view our money is a good indicator of where our hearts are and what we're devoted to. And it's so interesting that we so carefully budget that 10%. We so carefully squeak it in there. But how extravagantly we pour out our wealth for our house we can't afford and our cars we can't afford and our debt, the extravagance that we show in devotion to whatever we're purchasing all that stuff for and the meager little bit that we budget in. It's not just money, it's time. What are you pouring your time into? And we say, oh, I come to church every Sunday. And that's good. That's good, very good. But if that's one hour out of 168, it just doesn't seem very extravagant. And don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that you have to be at church every time the doors are open to prove your devotion to God. I'm just trying to get you thinking. How do you spend your resources, your money, your time? Because that, you follow that string back into your heart, you'll figure out what you're truly devoted to. And God cares how you spend your time. The average American watched about 28 hours of TV per week last year. We work about 40 hours a week or more. But how much time do we spend pursuing Jesus through prayer, through His Word, through fellowship with believers at church? What are you pouring your energy into? Your, what are you pouring your things into? Your time, your resources, your money? Because the answers to these questions reveal what you're devoted to. We're all devoted to something. We're all devoting ourselves and our energy and our resources to something. It's either Jesus or something else. The Bible teaches clearly that you can't serve two masters. You're either serving Jesus, you're either devoted to Jesus, or you're devoted to something else. Now isn't it interesting that both these people, Mary and Judas, come from the same sphere? Both of these people were followers of Jesus. From the outside, both of these people would have been called Christians. They both came from that circle. Yet, man, in their hearts, two such different loves in their hearts, two such different directions that they're devoted to. They both lived in proximity to the truth. And I just want that to be a warning to us that being in proximity to the truth is no indicator. It really isn't. It's what's in your heart. Now, it would be very easy for us to leave here discouraged after this. Feeling like you've just been beaten over the head over and over again. 
Especially if you take last week's sermon and this week and put them together. I feel like I've just been like, God, I don't know, almost violent towards you with it. But I don't want you to leave here feeling as though you've been pounded on. I really don't. I want you leaving here drenched with hope and encouragement. I want this next statement to just, just take this next statement in. Just let it flood into your heart after all this that, that we've studied. <coughs> God wants you to have saving faith in Jesus. God wants you to have saving faith in Jesus. And God wants you to have complete peace and assurance that you do have saving faith in Jesus. He's on your side in this. If we'll turn to Him and genuinely pray for these things, He'll give it to us. Now it's time for my family reference of the sermon. I haven't said anything yet, I don't think. My son's two and a half, Elias. And now that we have an infant, I take him around a lot more places where usually I would have left him at home. So I take him to Walmart or wherever, you know, in parking lots. And... and I can't hold him all the time because that kid is heavy. <laughs> and he's two and a half. Anyway, he needs to be walking. So I put him down and I say, Elias, you have to hold my hand. And what I do, I don't grab his hand. I stick my finger out. And he reaches up and grabs it. He's pretty good at this. He's a good little boy. And he grabs my finger and I say, you got to hold it tight. Tight, tight, tight. I always say that. you got to hold it tight. Tight, tight, tight. And I feel his little grip on there. And so we're in the parking lot of Walmart or wherever or in Walmart. And occasionally I'll feel that grip loosen. And I say, hold, hold my hand. Hold it tight, tight, tight. And he gets it back again. And then he sees a truck and he wants to go. And I say, hold my hand. Tight, tight, tight. <laughs> over and over again. Hold my hand. Hold it tight. Hold my hand. Hold it tight. Tight, tight, tight. Hold my hand. I'm not trying to pound him over the head with that. I'm not trying to be some harsh dad to him. I love him. And I know where I'm going with him. And he doesn't. And if he let go, if I let that grip loosen and let him just fade out into the crowd in Walmart, I mean, I'd probably never see him again. Or in a parking lot, if I let that grip loosen without saying, no, hold my hand tight. He'd be out, out there in the parking lot, cars zooming by. It's dangerous out there for him. I don't want him to get shuffled out in the crowd. I want him to hold on tight. So I remind him over and over and over again. Every time I feel that grip, that grip loosen on my finger, I say it again. It's for his safety and for his protection. It's for his good. This is how God loves you. The way I love my child is how God loves us. And when he feels our grip loosening on him, he's going to come back and say again, no. Hang on tight to me. Don't start depending on your church attendance for this. Don't start trying to draw strength from yourself for this. Tight, 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 tight. Hold on to me. That's his message for you this morning. And yes, over and over again. Because over and over again, we walk out there and we want to let go. Because we see something shiny and we just want to go running for it. To our own demise. I want to close the service in a different way than typical. I'm going to ask that everyone here will close their eyes and bow their heads.
I'm asking you to do this as some music plays because I want you to take in the words that I'm going to say for the remainder of this. Just let it wash over you. And I also want you to close your eyes and bow your head because this altar is open now. And people are not looking at you if you want to come pray. And I'm not going to bother you. But just bow your head and close your eyes and listen to me for a minute. God is not asking that anyone try harder. He's asking that everyone let go of their efforts to be good and turn to Jesus with humble, childlike faith and cling to him and grip his hand. God is not asking that anyone give more. He's asking that everyone let go of your possessions and cling to Jesus as your only hope. He's not asking that anyone come to church more often. He's asking that everyone turn their eyes from this worldly distraction, these worldly pleasures that occupy our time and that we pour our resources into. He's asking that we let go of those things and that we turn our eyes to Jesus and His glory and His grace and our hope that is only found in Him. He's asking for us to regrip. Or if you've never gripped onto his hand in the first place, he's asking that you reach out and just take hold of it. I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you briefly. It comes from 2 Corinthians. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed us to this message of reconciliation. He's not asking you to do anything you can't do. He just wants you to let go of whatever you're clinging to that you have a tighter grip on than you have on him. He wants to reconcile you to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. And in a minute, we're going to sing our final song. The altar remains open. My prayer is that we'll go out of here and that we will be extravagantly devoted to Christ and we'll grow in this. And that this Easter would be a time for us to take a big leap forward in our devotion to Christ.